Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Jeannie and I will be your MC today. Welcome to the Conference on Identity, jointly organised by the Institute of Policy Studies and the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies. We are very pleased to have you here with us this morning. Set against the context of a growing pluralisation of voices in the Singapore society, Today's conference will discuss the implications of issues of identity for nation-building and social resilience, as well as the conditions for inclusive and productive conversations. Today's program will begin with a keynote address by Minister for Finance, Minister, um, Mr. Lawrence Wong. It will be followed by a dialogue session with Ms. Minister Wong, moderated by Ambassador Ong King Yong, Executive Deputy Chairman of the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies. Thereafter, we will proceed with our first panel discussion, which will explore the construction and intersectionality of identity and the implications for diversity management, social resilience and nation building. Following that, panel two will discuss the conditions for inclusive and productive conversations and the innovations that will help people engage with those who are different from them. We will end each panel with a question and answer session with our panelists. We hope you will enjoy the programme. Now, we would like to invite the Minister to come on stage to deliver his remarks. Minister, please. Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for having me here today at this IPS Roundtable. I spoke about race a few months ago, and I noted then that a harmonious multiracial society does not occur naturally. One people, regardless of race, language or religion, that didn't fall ready-made from the sky. We made it happen, despite the differences of race, language or religion. Since I gave that speech, the government has continued to engage people on race. The Prime Minister himself spoke about this at the National Day Rally and announced we will introduce a Maintenance of Racial Harmony Act and anti-discrimination legislation. Meanwhile, I've noticed that other aspects of identity have surfaced in our conversations around gender, sex, or various causes that people feel strongly about. This is not surprising. The natural instinct of humans is to look out for those who are most like us. Around the world, we see the rise of what we might call a new tribalism in politics, or identity politics as it is commonly described. What does all this mean for Singapore and how should we respond? I will share some of my thoughts this morning and I should qualify that they are more in the nature of notes to prompt further discussion than a fully worked exposition. I'll start with some history to set the context of what, how we got to where we are today. Before nations, before empires, before even race, there were tribes. The word tribe comes from the Latin tribus. Romulus, the legendary first king of Rome, was said to have divided his city into three tribus, or groups of people. And as the Roman Republic and then Empire expanded, it soon became clear that these tribal bonds and loyalties were at odds with the very idea of Rome. For if the first loyalty of, of every Roman was to his own tribe, how then would Rome impose its authority across a far-flung empire? So Rome gave us another important concept, Civis Romanus, or Roman citizen. It was then a revolutionary idea that you didn't have to be of the same tribe or be born in the same place to be a citizen of Rome. And being a Roman citizen meant something. In fact, so great was the wrath of Rome toward anyone who dared to harm a Roman citizen that safety was said to be guaranteed for anyone who could declare Civis Romanus Sum, or I am a Roman citizen. In exchange, Roman citizens were expected to perform various civic duties, chief of which was to defend Rome when necessary. Roman citizenship was of course limited. Neither the Republic nor the Empire believed in a universal franchise. 
Only a small group of people could hope to be Roman citizens, typically male children of existing citizens or individuals in the provinces who had done great service to the empire. The over overwhelming majority were partial citizens of various kinds or slaves. But despite the limited nature of its citizenship, Rome demonstrated the possibility of different tribes coming together under a common banner and changing the course of history. Other ancient empires too struggled with tribalism. The Neo-Assyrian Empire, for example, deported conquered tribes and peoples to different parts of the empire so as to dilute their identities and attenuate tribal loyalties. Qin Shi Huang, the first emperor of China, was said to have burned countless philosophical texts and treatises in conquered states with the goal of unifying China under the official Qin identity language and thought. Today, after more than 2,000 years of human civilization, we no longer require monarchs or empires to promulgate concepts of citizenship. In many countries, we now embrace citizenship in constitutional republics. But the age-old conflict between national and tribal identities remains one of the most potent driving forces of violence within and between nations. You can look around the world and there are many examples, including the ethnic conflict between the Tutsis and Hutus in Rwanda in the 90s, the Free Arche movement in Indonesia in the 2000s, or the ongoing Tigray civil war in Ethiopia. The point is that tribalism runs deep in all human societies. A military historian, Victor Davis Hansen, had likened tribalism to, quote, an ancient narcotic. As he puts it, once tribalism takes hold, it's almost impossible to prevent it from destroying the much harder work of establishing multiracial nationhood and citizenship because it is an ancient narcotic. Some think that ethnically homogenous countries are less susceptible to such tribal conflicts. It is certainly easier to make citizens out of a group of people who look the same, speak the same language and share a common history. But tribe is not just a matter of ethnicity. There are other identity markers that are driving what we might call the new tribalism of the modern era. For example, the culture wars that we now see in the West cut across a huge swath of issues from abortion rights to voting rights, from work culture to even vaccinations and mask wearing. These encompass many ethnicities and religious groups. Significantly, even mono-ethnic societies have not been immune from the new tribalism. Poland, for example, is an ethnically homogenous country with Poles comprising more than 95% of the population. Yet, we have seen in recent years an intensifying standoff in the country between supporters of the LGBT rights and conservatives who oppose them with even some parts of the country declaring themselves LGBT-free zones amidst strong resistance from liberals. In the United States too, despite its long-cherished melting pot ethos, we see the rise of tribalism and identity politics. The once accepted political arguments for a racially diverse citizenry united by a common past and shared loyalties to the Constitution in the US are now eroding. Instead, we see greater political polarization based on ideology and identity. A growing proportion of Republicans and Democrats view the opposite party in starkly negative terms. Even life-saving public health measures like the wearing of masks and vaccination have become markers of political identities. Even science, never mind economics or culture, is no longer immune from political controversy. Why is it, despite nationalism, despite the spread of democracy, despite efforts to forge commonalities across tribes, races and religions, that we continue to live under the shadow of tribalism? 
part of the explanation could lie in how many societies have evolved over the last few years. Consider how life was like in the 50s or 60s. There were many problems, but societies everywhere were generally more cohesive and people were more connected and more active in their respective communities. In Singapore, we call this the kampung spirit. Over the last few decades, there has been a greater emphasis on the culture of self. It's about how I want to be free to be myself. We see this most prominently in the US and parts of Europe, but it permeates societies everywhere. And to be clear, the focus on the individual has brought about a lot of progress in many areas. But as the New York Times columnist David Brooks has noted, when the sense of self is inflated at the expense of community, individualism becomes the reigning ethos and the connections between people get weakened. This leads to loneliness and isolation. And when people feel lonely and alienated, they fall back on defences that are perhaps primeval in our species. We revert to tribes. And the internet has made it easier for such new tribes to form and organise. And unfortunately, the echo cham chamber of social media often means that these tribes end up self-selecting information to support and reinforce their own views. Tribalism may feel like community, but the two are not the same. Community is about inclusive connections. It's based on mutual affection. Tribalism is inherently exclusionary, and it's based on mutual hate. Us versus them, friend versus foe. Once this sort of tribal identity takes root, it becomes difficult to achieve any compromise. Because when we anchor our politics on identity, any compromise seems like dishonour. Every grievance threatens one's self-worth and every setback a challenge to one's sense of self. So we get a downward spiral. Individualism and self-interest cause tribes to form, each tribe closes ranks upon itself, and politics becomes defined as all-out war among tribes. What I've just described is not hypothetical. We see these trends happening in many first world democracies. Fortunately, we are in a better position in Singapore, but we cannot assume that the harmony we now enjoy is solid, let alone permanent. Singapore has always been a mix of tribal identities. We are a diverse racial mix from three major Asian civilizational complexes, China, India, and Southeast Asia. Yet we have none of their long history or indigenous cultures to hold us together. Indeed, it is worth reminding ourselves how divided we were barely a century or two ago. Even seemingly stable identities we now take for granted, Chinese, Malay, Indian, let alone Singaporean, were not stable at all. To illustrate this point, let me ask a question. What do you think was the worst ethnic disturbance in Singapore's history. Many would say the race riots of 1964, which resulted in 36 deaths and about 560 injuries. But in fact, a far more violent conflict took place between Hokkien's and Teochews in May 1854. The riots lasted for more than 10 days, leaving 400 or more people killed a great many wounded and about 300 houses burned. According to the historical record, the background to the conflict was the refusal of the Hokkien's to join in a subscription to assist the rebels who had been driven from Amoy by the Imperial China troops. It seems astounding to us today, but barely 150 years ago, tribal, or more accurately dialect in this case, these identities amongst Chinese here in Singapore, as well as in China too, trumped their racial, cultural, or national identity as Chinese. Or consider this, Singapore nationalism and Malayan nationalism that preceded it had its inspiration in the separate nationalism of Singapore's component races. 
if there had been no Chinese revolutions of 1911 and 1949, if there had been no Indian national movement which culminated in the independence of India and Pakistan in 1947, if there had been no Indonesian revolution leading to its independence in 1948, no Singaporean, Chinese, Malay or Indian would have conceived it possible to have a Singaporean nationalism. Our very claim of a national identity was prompted, if not inspired, by the tribal nationalisms of our various ethnic groups. Can we then really be sure, with the rise of China, India and Southeast Asia, that Singaporean nationalism will not deconstruct again into Chinese, Indian and Malay nationalisms? Our racial diversity is surpassed by our religious diversity. Muslims, Buddhists, Christians, Hindus, Taoists, and many more, many more. By some measure, Singapore is the most religiously diverse place in the world. So we are not strangers to the challenges that diversities pose. Our experience of racial and religious riots in the 1950s and 60s underlined clearly the potential for sectarian clash. We also saw how such differences could be politicized when we were part of Malaysia. Never again our founding leaders decided and declared. Still, after our independence in 1965, many doubted if a small island state like us, made up of people speaking dozens of languages and dialects and surrounded by much larger neighbours, could hold together for long. Nevertheless, against the odds, we managed to avoid serious conflict. And this did not happen by chance. Our founding leaders went to great lengths to put in place measures to safeguard our racial and religious harmony. They took tough but necessary action. They invoked the Internal Security Act against chauvinists of all ilk. They introduced what were in the short term unpopular policies, like making English the main medium of instruction in our schools, and later the ethnic integration program for public housing to create more common spaces amongst our different racial and religious groups. All of these moves were only possible because generations of Singaporeans believed that what stood, Singapore stood for as a nation exceeded the pool of their own tribal instincts and feelings. This was not an instinctive choice to make or the natural thing to do in many other societies. Imagine what would have happened if our founding leaders had pursued race-based politics, or if the majority Chinese in Singapore had insisted on Mandarin as our working language, or if we had allowed ethnic enclaves to form all over Singapore. There would not have been a Singaporean Singapore and no Singaporean identity to speak of. At best, we would be a loose confederation of tribes, one conflict away from splintering. But because Singaporeans made this improbable choice, we are now one of the few places in the world where despite the many imperfections, despite lingering prejudices, despite warts and all, people of different tribes have lived peacefully together for more than half a century here. This harmonious state of affairs will always be on a knife edge, so it needs constant attention and careful management. I had spoken before of how the spate of racist incidents earlier this year reminded us that we cannot take our racial harmony for granted. In the hyper-connected world that we live in, the culture wars that began in the West will not be confined there. They have already created new forms of identity politics here, beyond our familiar divides of race and religion. So if we are not careful, this new tribalism can easily take root here and our politics can become defined by new identity issues too. Now, managing these new tensions doesn't mean that we pretend that differences do not exist. For example, France has tried to deal with the issue of race by banning the collection of race-based data. But the problem has not gone away. 
Instead, France has seen a surge of racial protest in recent years, with many minority groups calling for the government to collect race-based data so as to better inform policymaking. The lesson is this. Simply ignoring identities and tribes does not mean they no longer exist. Instead, as a starting point, we must recognize that the pool of identity politics arises from the real differences in lived realities. Different segments of our population will have their own real and valid concerns and anxieties. For example, women continue to bear a disproportionate share of housework and receive less recognition at work compared to their male counterparts. Another example, people with disabilities are not able to participate as fully in society as they would like to. And yet another more contested example, LGBTQ persons feeling that society does not accept them or even recognize them as different. These are important concerns. One cannot say to any of these groups that their concerns are illegitimate or exaggerated. For if we are to live up to the founding ethos of Singapore, every Singaporean deserves a place in our society, regardless of his or her background status or racial or cultural identity. This is what a fair and just society must mean, and we cannot, in the name of avoiding the dangers of identity politics, deny the rights of a variety of groups to organise themselves so as to gain recognition for their concerns or seek to improve their conditions and well-being. The challenge is to acknowledge and do our best to address the legitimate concerns of every tribe without allowing our politics to be based exclusively on identities or tribal allegiances. This, of course, is easier said than done. Before, in the aftermath of the 1964 race riots, we took pains to minimise our differences. Today, we have a more diverse society, but we also have much more in common, and the Singaporean identity has become stronger. So how can we balance the competing demands of diverse identity groups while maintaining a cohesive and harmonious society? How can we build a society where everyone is equal and everyone has a place regardless of their backgrounds? These are difficult questions and I don't have full answers, but I would like to raise a few possible approaches. First, to tackle tribalism and identity politics, we should strengthen our human relationships. This starts with strengthening the spirit of reciprocity and kinship at the daily level. We must be good friends, good neighbours, good Samaritans. Having such human relationships ultimately help to strengthen the trust we have in one another. And this is the elemental task in every society because when people lose faith in one another, things fall apart very quickly. It takes effort and time to get to know those around us and build trust. It's not something we can compel or do at scale. Relationships have to be built one at a time. But what we can scale are social norms. So we should work hard to strengthen the norms that bring us closer together. Norms like caring for others, kindness, graciousness. And we have seen many good examples of such norms throughout this pandemic. The countless healthcare workers who went beyond their call of duty to care for our COVID patients. All the numerous examples of frontline workers, from taxi drivers to cleaners to food delivery riders who toiled silently to keep our society going. These examples represent the best of us, and we should recognize the values they embody. We should take pride in our fellow Singaporeans who are prepared to set the interests of others ahead of their own and serve the greater good. These are our role models which we should all strive to emulate. Second, let us avoid stereotyping groups of people or assuming that each community is monolithic or homogenous. 
I spoke about this before in the context of the phrase Chinese privilege. A female Chinese from a poor background would have a vastly different lived experience compared to a male Chinese from a wealthy family. And Chinese privilege is not the only stereotype. Many of us may hold preconceived notions about each other's ethnicity, gender, religion, or political allegiance. Minorities especially are subject to such prejudices. So all of us must be more conscious of the stereotypes we might harbour. We must avoid reducing our understanding of each other to a single dimension. This hardens our views of those who are different from us. And over time, we see all issues through that particular lens. It will become increasingly difficult to find common ground or solutions that benefits all groups. Conversely, we should be mindful of breaking society into ever smaller boxes. This is what we have seen in some places. For example, black feminists not seeing eye to eye with white feminists or one minority feeling that it has to be more aggrieved than another, and so on. We must fight the instinct to set ourselves apart and pigeonhole others, and instead be willing to build understanding and commonality across identity lines. The reality is that all of us have multiple identities. This is true of racial and religious identities, and it is also true of a variety of other identities. Being a Singaporean should never mean having to give, give up any of our other identities. So we may be Chinese, Malay, Indian, Eurasian, or any other race, but we are first and foremost Singaporeans. Likewise, regardless of our gender or sexual orientations, regardless of the cause we champion, we are all Singaporeans first and foremost. If we uphold this idea that being Singaporean is a matter of conviction and choice and that it takes priority over our other identities and affiliations, that would give all of us one important commonality around which to build understanding and trust, to negotiate our differences and find common ground on difficult issues, and then we can continually look for ways to move forward together. Third, let us draw on the better angels of our nature. Humans are tribalists, but we are also traders by nature. Throughout history, humanity has thrived because of our instinctive desire to explore the unknown, to meet new people amongst whom we can live with, trade with, and learn from. In fact, these trader instincts are an integral part of who we are as Singaporeans, because Singapore started as an entrepot trading hub. Trade is in our blood. Trade is not just about making economic transactions. Trade is grounded on norms of reciprocity, trust, and mutual benefit. The foundation of all successful trades lies in the willingness to exchange and cooperate. To trade effectively, we must build long-term win-win relationships with others. So this same Trading instinct is crucial in setting the tone of our society. And from the beginning, our forefathers knew the importance of compromises and striking a fair deal for all. They knew cooperation rather than competition and conflict was the best way forward. This became not just the basis for our economy, but the outlook for our entire society. It's perhaps one reason why tripartite tripartism has succeeded here more than in any other advanced economy. So we must continue in this vein, continue to engage with one another, cooperate and work towards mutual benefit. We must do so not only with those outside Singapore, but also between different segments of Singaporeans as well. We must listen, understand, compromise and negotiate for win-win outcomes knowing that we are stronger by working with and learning from one another. Fourth, as a society, we must continue to give all Singaporeans reason to hope and a fair chance to have a good life. The rise of extreme politics in many advanced economies is in large part related to their 
economic woes. The middle class in many Western countries has been steadily losing ground, not just for years, but for several decades. The typical households there face stagnating incomes, with their children faring less well than their parents. College graduates are unable to get jobs and are laden with student debts. We must never allow this to happen in Singapore. So we will continue to work hard to promote inclusive growth and to ensure that all Singaporeans can succeed in their pursuits. This is how we break out of a zero-sum mindset where certain groups feel like others' success must have come at their own expense or feel that every tribal setback is a major grievance. When it comes to social programmes, we will do our best to avoid such invidious comparisons by balancing targeted support with universal coverage for essential items. In short, we will do everything we can to make sure that the Singaporean dream remains alive and well for every Singaporean. On top of all this, the government must and will always be a fair and honest broker. Despite our best attempts, we might not always succeed in establishing a consensus on especially controversial issues. In such cases, the government will do our utmost to recognise the challenges and needs of different groups, decide on the appropriate policy, and convince the rest of society that this is a fair way to move forward. We have done so for the ethnic integration policy in our HDB flats. We have done so for the special assistance plan in our schools. And we will continue to do so on other issues. We may not always arrive at a perfect solution, but we will never let any group feel unheard, ignored or excluded. We will never let any group feel boxed in or ostracised. All must feel that they are part of the Singapore conversation. All must feel they are part of the Singapore family. All must feel there is hope for the future. Like many societies, Singapore is slowly emerging out of the COVID-19 pandemic. The last two years have been a tough time for everyone. In these most difficult of times, we are naturally drawn to the security of our own tribes. It is tempting to look at others, especially someone who is different from us, as the cause of our frustrations and pressures. But as we turn the tide in our fight against COVID-19, we must be careful not to allow these differences to become permanent divides that separate us. We must redouble our efforts to reach across our differences and strengthen our connections with one another. On our part, the government will never waver from our commitment to work with everyone, to broaden our common space and to build a society where every Singaporean can express their views and be empowered to effect positive change. Our pledge, which we recite regularly, begins not with the individual, but with the collective. It's about we, the citizens of Singapore. And it's about happiness, prosperity and progress for our nation. So let us continue to work together to strengthen our Singaporean Singapore and build a better society for all. Thank you. Thank you, Minister. We will now start our dialogue session with Minister Wong, moderated by Ambassador Ong King Yong. To our online audience, please submit your questions via the Zoom Q&A panel that appears at the bottom of your screen. Minister Wong and Ambassador Ong, please. Thank you, Minister, for that uh, very concise... I'm not sure it was that concise. I think well, for me, at least, spoke very for concise, more than half an uh, hour. Well, it's a big topic and you are trying to integrate the topic with other issues that have come up. So it is, uh, for me, a clear explanation of what the government, or in this case, you yourself as a minister, see the situation. Um, we 
should go straight into uh, looking at the comments and questions from the audience out there. But maybe taking advantage of my uh, moderator's privilege, I want to start by asking you a particular uh, question. As we see now the reaction of Singaporeans, we are getting more and more uh, reactions from younger Singaporeans who feel that uh, their concerns about uh, political and social issues should be just as important as the earlier concerns about making a living and all that. Is this a generational thing or there is something more than uh, the separation of the younger and older Singaporeans? How, how can government or how can the leadership in government tackle this going forward? Well, Keng Yong, I think it's, it's a shift over time. In many ways, it is to be expected because as society evolves and matures, there will be new dimensions of inequality that emerge and a stronger desire for fairness to be applied across these new dimensions. <clears throat> Take the example of public housing. We used to just provide flats for married couples. Over time, increasingly, you now have calls for flats also for singles, for divorcees, for single unwed parents. It's not, so this is not just social, political, it's also, you know, um, partly bread and butter, but there is a call for fairness in these new dimensions and public policy has had to adjust and we've started changing some of our policies on HDB flats over time. But I should, I should also add and highlight that from the government's point of view, our conception and our vision of a fair and just society has never been narrowly applied to just bread and butter issues. We have always been very mindful of fairness across social and political dimensions. And that's why from the very beginning, the PAP government put in the Women's Charter in order to protect and advance the rights of women. And we enshrine racial and religious equality in our constitution. So as society evolves, as new demands and new desires uh, reflected in society, the government has to respond and policies will accordingly evolve. I think the way forward for all of us in this new phase of development is, as I said just now in my speech, for us to engage deeply, listen to one another. It's not just about every group pushing for maximum rights and entitlements for themselves because it will not be possible to accommodate all of these requests. There will be trade-offs that have to be made. There will be difficult prioritization decisions that have to be made. So how can we continue this engagement in a spirit of mutual benefit, in a spirit of continuously expanding the common ground we share? And if we do that, I think we can move forward together as a society. Recently, I had a conversation with a, a foreign friend of mine. And he had been here for the last almost a year because of the COVID-19 restriction for travel. And he was somewhat intrigued by the constant appearance on TV or on social media by the Prime Minister, by the Minister to explain policies, uh, measures taken. On COVID. On COVID, yeah. Hmm. And then he started to look at the kind of uh, political, social, economic issues that Singaporeans uh, encounter. And he noticed two things. One, people, the Singaporeans, always look forward to some form of explanation from the leadership on particular challenges of the day. Secondly, he's trying to figure out, is there a singular Singaporean identity uh, from all this socialization, all this development of the past 50 over years? Yeah. And if so, how is this singular uh, identity of Singaporean being stacked up 
with the rest of the new ideas you get on social media from the younger generation who feel they have every right to add on to this uh, designed, uh, conceptualized or practice uh, identity that Singaporeans are exposed to from constant uh, speeches and exhortation from the government leaders. How do you feel about this? The Singaporean identity has never been a singular one. As I mentioned just now, we have multiple identities mm. and we should we don't have to give up these multiple identities. We can be of a different race, whatever your identity is in the real world or in the metaverse, mm. you know, you don't have to give them up. You can be Singaporean and all of that at the same time. I think what's important is to find the commonality and the common ground we all share as Singaporeans. And, and so that, that's critical because that's the building block in any, in any country, in any society. In the end, it's about how we interact and relate to one another as Singaporeans and the trust we have in one another. Mm. And it, it, sounds like, um, it sounds like a very straightforward thing, but these things can move and shift very quickly. Look at, look at America. We, we, we all have been reading uh, stories about or, you know, reading analysis about what's happening in America. Two generations ago, about 60% of Americans would say they have a high level of trust in their fellow Americans. Or if you ask them, is your neighbor trustworthy? Again, about 60% of Americans would say yes. Today, that figure is about one third. Mm. It's come down so sharply. And if you poll the younger folks, the younger generations, the figure is lower. The mm. distrust is lower. Mm. And the point is when people lose faith with each other, it is very hard to hold a country together. Mm. And so what we must ensure is that even with these multiple identities that may take root in Singapore, we should never demonize one another. We should never lose trust in each other. We should always keep faith with our fellow Singaporeans despite our differences. Mm. And from the government's point of view, as I mentioned just now, we will strive to be an, a fair and honest broker in these conversations. We will listen to different sides of the debate. We mm. will attempt to understand how attitudes and mindsets are shifting because they will shift over time. It's not a static position. And as we do that, uh, where there are policy decisions to be made, we will strive to find the appropriate policy setting. Mm. In some instances, we may decide after lengthy deliberation and discussion to make adjustments to our policies, like we did with the wearing of tudong for mm. nurses. Mm. In other instances, we may decide that we keep the policy, but we allow more flexibilities at the margins, like what we have done with our ethnic integration policy for HDB flats. So I think this process of allowing conversations to happen, engaging deeply with humility and respect for one another, and then uh, un you know, understanding that whatever the policy may be today, it is never static mm. because policies will ultimately reflect the evolving balance in our society. And we are all committed to this process, to ensuring that our policies uh, reflect that balance in society, which will continue to shift and change. So, you know, in S. Rajaranam School of International Study at NTU, we have a lot of uh, foreign scholars and researchers and also uh, increasingly more foreign students. And they, are all, and they are always intrigued by one thing that they try to get a fix on, which is that if they are in the NTU campus, they talk among themselves, they can understand what you have just said. But when they go out to the surrounding HDB residential area or the food centres or the what we call hawker centres in Singapore, uh, they just wonder how Singaporean of all background, all levels of social uh, uh, achievement, integrate and understand what you just said. 
you know. So I encourage some of them to maybe go to the community centre, yes. to the meet the people session of the elected member of parliament to understand how this thing is being communicated. Because we are, they appreciate all this that uh, we have been uh, uh, listening to you in the past half hour or so. But they just wonder how the mechanic of it is being uh, executed. Yeah? And what happened is there is a guy who just refused to listen to your idea of wearing masks and he go out there in the middle of the public square at the food centre to say, we don't want to do this, I don't want to do that. Yeah. So this is something that intrigued a lot of uh, what I call non-Singaporean and even maybe the younger Singaporean who are trying to understand this. Yes, I would say it applies to some segments of our own people too. That yeah. we do need to, we sometimes live in our own worlds and we there's a lot of uh, echo chamber effect, thinking that this perspective that I share with my tribe, in fact, is shared across the board with all Singaporeans, but it's not not always the case. Mm. And, and that's why, I mean, this is not new. The, the, the people talk about contact theory, right? Mm. The more you have contact with one another, the more you are able to address blind spots, mm. prejudices, stereotypes, because you start to realise people are different, but the difference is not something to be afraid of. In fact, we also have many things in common. And we see things from another perspective. We learn to have empathy with one another. Um, that's, and that's a whole point of building social capital. That's a whole point of having networks mm. and human relationships, mm. which is why these have to be strengthened. Uh, it's unfortunate with the pandemic that we have had less of an, a, an fewer opportunities to do so over the last two years. Mm. Zoom is not the same. Virtual meetings are not the same because you don't get the chance to interact, you don't get the chance to sort of feel the person and get the sense of the expression, body language and all. So it's not quite the same and that's why also we hope that as we begin to ease on our restrictions and open up gradually, we will be able to resume many of these activities, many of these social interactions, be it in our schools, our institutions of higher learning, or in our community. Mm. So there is a very um, interesting question posed by one of our uh, listeners, and uh, many others have supported this uh, particular question. Uh, in the process that you mentioned, there is always the necessity for people to tell someone in charge, some guys or some groups are not doing what is expected of them socially or there is a failing or shortfall in human relationship. Uh, in America, they call it whistleblower. Yeah. And in recent days, there are quite a few such uh, whistleblowers. And the reaction on social media or even uh, in other uh, medium, media, uh, has been quite negative in some sense. So how do we sort of, uh, the question posed to you is, how do we deal with this side of uh, situation? Do we uh, protect the whistleblower more extensively, more intensively? Uh, and how does that work with uh, their relationship with other members of their community? Uh, going forward, uh, this is an issue that uh, at least this questioner and those who follow his question want to know uh, from sure. you. There is a role for whistleblowing in any society. Mm. There is a role for someone to call out, identify mm. and call out wrongdoing mm. of any sort. Mm. It can happen in our HDB flats. It can happen now with COVID-19 and all the restrictions and measures for COVID-19, or it can happen in a company setting. I think the question, the issue is how does, how this is done and the processes for it to, to sort of address the wrong without harming the broader relationships that are at stake. Mm. And that's a very delicate process, but it can be done. Mm. Uh, certainly, one thing that shouldn't be done is to you know, use the forum of the social media, I think, to, to galvanize hate and anger against that person and cancel that person out. I don't think that is 
a very constructive way. Some people mm. choose to do it that way, but I'm not sure that in the longer term that strengthens relationships. But if you have processes, and many companies have processes, many governments, government organizations certainly have mm. processes where mm. when there is a complaint, we take every complaint seriously. We seek to protect the identity of the person who is a whistleblower unless mm. he or she is prepared to be identified. Because from time to time, uh, some of these things need to, need, may need mediation, may need uh, you, you may need to follow up. So mm. if the person is prepared to be identified, fine. But there are processes to protect the identity of the whistleblower while at the same time making sure that the issues are put right and rectified. Mm. And, and that's what we have been trying to do all this while. I think underlying this particular uh, line of questions are also concerns by some of these citizens and Singaporeans about the legislation that has been introduced to deal with, you know, what is seen to be uh, whistleblowing attempts, but actually speaking out on certain forms of mm. uh, racism and discrimination. Yeah. yeah. So this is something that uh, the leadership will have to. But there's uh, nothing in legislation to... that prevents legitimate whistleblowing. Yeah. Yeah. That's the good part about whistleblowing uh, process. Yeah. The other interesting point raised by some of the uh, audience some members of the audience, is this idea of, you know, you talk about tribalism and all the concerns of these individual groups or separate groups of uh, uh, promoters of their respective viewpoint. The interpretation by some of the uh, listener to your speech is that they are also securing their own rights. Uh, it's not just advocating the supremacy or what they what they are characteristic or belonging uh, to a particular tribes. So how do you sort of balance this? Uh, tribalism is not just reaching out to attack other people and their identity, but it's also to secure what is perceived to be their own rights and their own sense of security. Absolutely. And if you, you know, I had addressed that and I had made quite was quite careful to mm. highlight the point that there are differences in lived realities mm. Mm. amongst different tribes or different groups. And it is entirely legitimate for any tribe or group to seek to organize themselves to want to promote their well-being and interests. Mm. In fact, we welcome that. That's part of how our society evolves and becoming more open and diverse. Mm. What I'm cautioning about is more an attitude and mindset that if one takes an aggressive confrontational approach asserting maximum entitlement and entitlement and rights against other groups and this dynamic can easily happen in our society because it has happened in almost all other societies we've looked at mm. uh, if that sort of uh, attitude um, and dynamic sets in takes root in singapore it will very quickly erode trust in one another and mm. that's my bigger concern um, i you know talked about the analogy of a trader mm. and how when you trade you need both sides to come together you need norms of reciprocity and mutual benefit if all parties just want to sell to advocate and sell and there is no buyer there is no trade so in any, in any effective relationship, you can't just have one side. If you're all talking, pushing, no one is listening. I think we are not having a proper conversation. So the call for engagement, I think, can work if we are committed, not just to a process of advocacy, but also a process of engagement, listening, compromise, negotiation. Mm. and constantly expanding our common space. Let's be, let me move to another dimension from the questions and comments. Yeah, a few of the uh, audience, members of the audience focus on inclusion. And this is particularly uh, relevant because in this COVID situation that we are confronting, we see foreign workers, domestic workers, 
working in our own respective household and neighborhood, uh, somewhat separated. Yeah, and many Singaporeans are talking up, speaking out against such kind of uh, uh, non-inclusion. Yeah. So the question that have been posed uh, come across in different uh, form. Some asking, can we do better to integrate uh, the foreign workers among us? Um, how can we, you know, offer uh, better arrangements to integrate them more into our Singaporean society? And how the leadership see such effort with regard to impact on the identity that you talk about? Sure. Well, when it comes to COVID and public health measures, we have tried very hard not to make differentiation mm. between citizens and non-citizens. For example, vaccines are given out to everyone in mm. Singapore. Mm. So, because it doesn't matter, the, the virus does not respect citizenship. Yeah, nationality. <laughs> or nationality, yeah. right? It's, it, you know, anyone is at risk. So, from a public health point of view, we try very hard not to differentiate. And indeed, that has been uh, our starting point. Mm. But we also recognize that certain groups are at greater risk. For example, migrant workers living together in a communal setting in a dormitory. They are at greater risk, just as anyone who might be living in, a, in such a communal setting may be of greater risk because it's higher density, more likely for the virus to spread. Mm. And that's why some of these additional safeguards are necessary. But the broader point of inclusion is well taken. And I, I really appreciate people speaking up on that front because mm. we can and must do a lot more to integrate foreign workers in our midst. We must address NIMBY sentiments where when we want to build more dorm, uh, dormitories, which yeah. we have to in order yeah. to de-densify yeah. our present dormitories, we get a strong reaction from certain segments because the dormitory is just next to the, where they are living. Yeah, so and this is not in, not in my backyard. That's right. Uh, phobia. So I think if we, if we can embrace a more inclusive approach, then, then we, we should... You know, we can get more of these things done and we can better integrate mm. our foreign workers in our society. And it's, it's so vital because we have seen throughout this pandemic that many of them are part of the essential workforce that helps to keep Singapore going through these past 20 months or 20 plus months. Yeah. There is an interesting response to your point about trade and reciprocity. Yeah. So... Um, reference was made to the LGBTQ. Uh, the, que the point is that what can this group of uh, Singaporean trade with anybody? Because they don't see they having the leverage or the rights to trade with anybody. And what would other Singaporean? Uh, uh, why would other Singaporean want to trade and reciprocal and reciprocate any of these uh, issues? And particularly bringing in the religious outlook towards such kind of uh, 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 lifestyle. Sure. Well, I can understand the sentiments of LGBTQ persons or groups, um, but I hope they also appreciate it. This is a very, uh, an issue where people have very, very strong views. Mm. It's so everywhere in the world, but it's, it's, it's so in Singapore too. But I would say, all to you know, LGBTQ groups that the attitudes are not static, they are shifting. Mm. Because we talk to different groups all the time, LGBTQ, religious groups, young and old, and you can perceptibly, it's very clear, sentiments and attitudes are shifting, especially amongst young people, mm. but also shifting for the whole of society. So in that sense, the conversations do play a part it's not futile. It's not as though things will be static forever. You know, I, as these attitudes and sentiments shift, then, you know, society will have to think about where the balance might be. And the government, too, will have to consider what that balance and might would be appropriate for 
society and what policies might have to adjust? Thank you, Minister. I think we are uh, coming to the uh, conclusion part of our uh, session this morning. But there is a interesting uh, putting together of a few threads here uh, under this general question of um, why we disperse financial aid or other form of assistance to the community self-help uh, groups. Um, for example, we support Mandaki mm. to help the Malay community, Sinda to help the Indian community. So underlying this uh, particular question, I guess, is an issue about uh, uh, Malay help Malay, Indian help Malay, Indian help Indian, this CMIO, this kind of community uh, supporting its own members. How far away uh, uh, can it go? Uh, especially in this, uh, in the context of what you just said. In fact, in fact, for the most part, uh, financial assistance from the government is mm. currently now disbursed through the social service office, mm. centralised government agency, but they have branches all over Singapore and most of the financial aid from the state is disbursed through the SSO. Mm. Does it mean that the self-help groups the ethnically-based self-help groups have no role? No, it doesn't. What is their role? Mm. Well, their role is as follows. We have realised, and I think anyone who is working in this space also knows this, very often when we are reaching out to help lower-income households and families, the issue is not simply about giving them money. There is a lot more that is required to counsel the family, Parents, could be a marriage issue, it could be uh, dealing with financial debt, it could be just talking about you know, certain norms of parenting. And in, it, it, a lot of these is very involved. You really need to walk the journey side by side with the family. Mm. You need to understand even cultural issues around that and norms around that. And very often we have found it is easier for someone from the same group to be able to reach out to that family, mm. engage them and walk that journey with, him, with them, that particularly that last mile with them. Mm. And I think that's a very useful and important role. Financial assistance government can provide, but that face-to-face, you know, that, -face, that mentoring, that, that human touch, that's very hard for any government agency to do. And, and, and the role of self-help groups and their volunteers, I think they play a very important role in that endeavour. Yeah, I used to work at the People's Association and I do see that need for such kind of what I call customised approach. Yeah. Uh, but a related question uh, pop up in the sense that many Singaporeans see the lower privileged uh, segment of our population, many non-Chinese. So how can the Chinese majority uh, empathize with uh, the lower income segment of our population when there are very few Chinese in that category? And so this idea of uh, having self-help groups to help their own community uh, might not be as uh, efficacious as some of these uh, questioners are mm. uh, viewing it. Well, I would say that having self-help groups does not mean that we exclude mm. other races mm. and other groups from helping the poor in Singapore. Mm. Not at all. It's not an exclusionary approach. Mm. It's, it's all of the above. Mm. Self-help groups have a role to play, but all of us, in the community and regardless of our, where our backgrounds, identities, all of us can play a role too to help the lower income in our society. There's so much to do. So we are looking at different ways in which we can better organize ourselves in order to pull together all of these various efforts. Uh, it's, it's not easy, but there is a work that's taking place now within MSF, the SSOs, to see how we can better coordinate these multiple efforts, be it from grassroots, self-help groups, a whole range of different community groups so that we 
take a more holistic, family-centric approach. It's not about what I want to do or what different groups want to do. All of us have different things we would like to do. But ultimately, it's about what the family needs and how we can pull together resources from the whole of society to, pro to uplift these families and their children. Thank you, Minister. I think our time is up. But I just wanted to maybe give you one minute. Since you last spoke about race and today you address this issue of identity, what is your one or two sentences for all of us listening in to you? How do we proceed? Well, on identity, I would say we should take heart that in Singapore, young though we may be as an independent nation, and you know, given the fact that we have embraced a concept of multiculturalism that involves multiple identities. So despite that, despite our young age as an independent nation, despite our model of multiculturalism, we do see the, the core of the Singaporean identity growing stronger and stronger. Um, when I was first, uh, when I became Minister for Culture in MCCY, I read a lot of what uh, Mr. Rajaratnam, our first culture minister, had written. And he talked about a Singaporean identity, even back then, as one that was rooted in many civilizations, and yet something that is distinctive and unique. And indeed, now, more than 50 years after independence, we do see something unique and distinctive emerging. It's, it's not just about the way we talk or, or the food we like to eat and all that. I mean, the, you can tell apart a Singaporean Chinese from a PRC Chinese, and the same goes for a Singaporean Malay, Singaporean Indian. Mm. Uh, there, it's something about our attitudes, our mindsets, and our values. And I think that's something to cherish. And if we can continue to make sure despite many more different identities beyond race, continue to make sure that that core, that commonality that holds us together as Singaporeans remains the priority, strengthen that. I think that will put us in very good state for the future. Indeed, I think the element that you mentioned come out more clearly when Singaporeans are overseas and when they are together. Uh, anyway, I think... Um, Time has come uh, to conclude this session with you, Minister. Thank you for your excellent uh, explanation and uh, points for us to ponder over in the coming days. Yeah, we look forward to another session with you on uh, this topic of identity and Singaporean uh, nationhood. Thank, Thank you, you very much, Minister. Thank you.